few years ago, you might have heard of the Martin Scorsese film Silence. And uh, it was kind of a surprising film to see someone like Martin Scorsese make. It was a film uh, de depicting French missionaries to Japan a few hundred years ago as they were dealing with great persecution in the country. It's actually based on a Japanese book by Shusako Endo, Silence. And the great theme of that book is the experience of seeing suffering and persecution and feeling, even as a Christian, that God did not care, that amidst all of this, he was silent. At one point in the story, the main character, Rodriguez, sees two of the Japanese Christians who were a part of this village that he was with, taken by the authorities and attached to two stakes at the shore of the ocean such that they slowly and through torment died as the waters would continually wave over their bodies. He witnesses this. And in response, he says, They were martyred. But what a martyrdom! I had long read about martyrdom in the lives of the saints, how the souls of the martyrs had gone home to heaven, how they had been filled with glory in paradise, how the angels had blown trumpets. This was the splendid martyrdom I had often seen in my dreams. But the martyrdom of the Japanese Christians I now describe to you was no such glorious thing. What a miserable and painful business it was. The rain falls unceasingly on the sea, and the sea which killed them surges on uncannily in silence. It's this idea of the silence of God amidst suffering that plagues Rodriguez as he's trying to be a faithful missionary to the Japanese Christians and it's this persecution and violence continues. This morning I want us to ask uh, three questions of the text that we read. The first is how should a Christian live in a hostile culture? What does this kind of life look like and why should we live like that? So we turn now to uh, the scripture for this morning, Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Paul was certainly a Christian undergoing persecution. He was awaiting a sentence which either would lead to life for him or for death, and he was already in prison. This was after a long life of, or a, a long few ministry years of constantly being in prison, constantly being beaten and run out of cities and chased down. Paul was familiar with the idea of persecution, and he actually, as we've seen in our study of Philippians so far, expected that the church in Philippi was either already or was about to face persecution at basically the same level he himself was now. So amidst all of this, Paul tells them, starting in verse 21, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. How should a Christian live in a hostile culture? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
I actually like how the Christian Standard Bible translates this because you lose something in some of our translations because the verb is actually connected to the word you might know, polis, referring to polity or politics, as being a citizen. So really, it should read something like this. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. As citizens, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul tells the Philippians that they are citizens of heaven. And this was a radical thing to be telling them, to be teaching them that their citizenship should be shaped by heaven rather than earth, because this was Philippi. It was a Roman colony filled with retired Roman soldiers, all loyal to Caesar, all loyal to the emperor, all loyal to Rome. They saw being citizens not just as a duty, but as a a privilege and as an honor. They could walk nearly any part of the known earth, safe from persecution and safe from death, simply by the words, I am a Roman citizen. So they took their citizenship as Romans highly, but Paul is teaching them not to value their earthly citizenship too much. In fact, the teaching of Scripture, if I was to put it in modern terms, is that Christians are dual citizens. Maybe you've known some people in your life who were dual citizens. They, they were citizens of more than one nation. Maybe they were American and also citizens of another country. But living out of that dual citizenship, they have all the duties of being citizens of each of their countries and all of the burdens of being citizens of all their countries, but also all the honors. Christians are called to be dual citizens. We are both citizens of this earth, of our country, of our state, of our county, of our town, of our community. But more importantly, and even greater than that, we are also citizens of heaven. We are citizens who have been transformed and shaped by the gospel such that our citizenship here on earth must completely and utterly change. Now, some people, when they talk about this, give you the picture of the two coming together. You're dual citizens. They are coming together. You are both part of your nation and part of your Christian faith, and you bring those together, and they shape each other. But that's not the picture of Scripture. I want to be very clear. It's not that our nationality should shape our faith, and our faith should shape our nationality, and we should bring those together. That's called syncretism. That's when we take the gospel and we add something else to it so that it no longer remains the gospel. What Paul is talking about is remaining dual citizens, but allowing our heavenly citizenship, which is the priority, allowing our citizenship of being worthy to the gospel, allowing that to transform and shape and remake our citizenship here on earth, so that as we vote, we vote not as people holding our faith back in the church, but as people who are Christian. So that as we live in our community, we live as people who are Christian. You can't take off your Christianity when you go volunteer at the local nonprofit. You can't take off your Christianity when you go to the town hall. You have to live as citizens, but not primarily as citizens here, but as citizens of another kingdom, of another place, of another world that this world we see now has not seen or experienced. We live as people who are of a different world. 
So our citizenship in heaven must shape our citizenship on earth. And Paul tells us that is how Christians should live in a hostile culture, in a culture that hates you, in a world that hates you. You are still to live as citizens of heaven, not shirking your responsibility, not hiding your Christianity when your pastor's not around. Paul tells them, so that whether I come, he wants them to live like this, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are living like this. It doesn't matter whether Paul shows up and visits them again, or whether he just hears about them, or whether he is taken and executed. They are to live worthy of the gospel, whether Paul's there to keep them accountable or not. Why? Because people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel are people who need to live worthy of the gospel. Such that even our ideas of being a citizen, of being a person in our culture and in our communities and in our politics are changed by the fact that we are in Christ. And this is a difficult pill for people to swallow in a culture that says, leave your religion at the door. And now I'm not talking about mixing your religion with your politics. I'm talking about changing your politics to fit your religion. Living lives as citizens of heaven who now live worthy as citizens of the gospel here on earth. You didn't think I was going to get into politics ever, did you? So what does this kind of life look like? Paul, uh, we could go on and on and on about what it looks like to live as a citizen of heaven. However, Paul gives us at least four ways we can look at in this passage. The first is that we are standing firm in one spirit. Here in verse 27 that he wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit. Now, the idea of spirit here, if you have the English Standard Version, which is what we read from this morning, you'll notice that the word spirit is lowercase. Now, in the original language, they actually would have written everything in uppercase with no spaces and no punctuation. Okay, So scholars have come and they've separated it all from the very beginning. Even when they translated the King James, they had to do this work. Okay. So we don't have a reason to lowercase or capitalize unless we're making a decision about what it means. And some translations choose to translate a little bit less, to interpret a little bit less. And so here, it's ambiguous. Is it referring to the Holy Spirit, or is it referring to some sense of community spirit? You can think of when you're in high school and people said, oh, we had great school spirit. Alcoa has great school spirit. Oh, go tornadoes, right? That's not exactly really what Paul has in mind. And, and I'll just point out two reasons I think this. One... When we get to chapter 2 next week, we'll see that Paul references the Holy Spirit in verse 1. So it seems that he's got on his mind being in one spirit. But also, the idea of having like community spirit or church spirit or group spirit or school spirit or whatever is foreign to the Greek that Paul would have been writing in, and there's no evidence he was trying to insert that idea into it. So I'm going to proceed, controversially perhaps, Assuming that that means in one spirit, capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit. And this would make sense. Because Paul is talking not just to one Philippian. He's talking to the church of Philippi. He's talking to a group of people. And so he's telling them to stand firm together. To strive side by side together. He's giving them clear guidelines about how they are to live in community. And if we are going to stand firm in one community, we are going to need God's help. We're going to need the Holy Spirit's 
help. We're going to need the power of God because without God's keeping us together, we will be like any other group on this earth. We'll be like every band that you've ever loved that's broken up. We'll be like every bank that they said was too big to fail and broke up. See, I'm coming up with lots of metaphors this morning. We'll just fracture and divide and splinter. But if we have the Holy Spirit's power to keep us together, then we can stand firm in one spirit. Now, how do we stand firm in one spirit? Well, first, if we're going to be in one spirit, we have to be as individuals, people transformed by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures teach us that anyone who is in Christ has the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling within them. So if we are going to be a spirit people, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means that we must, must change our direction in our lives. This is uh, what theologically we call regeneration. When someone is converted. To put it this way, it's when someone goes from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, from being born to being born again, from being a creation to being a new creation, to being out of Christ to being in Christ. This is what it means to be transformed by the work of God. This is what it means to be a spirit-filled person. It means someone who has turned away from a life of sin and the sinful inclinations of the heart and turned toward God in Christ in faith, trusting Christ and his work on the cross for our salvation, for our union with Christ. So more than anything, we need to make sure that we, as I said when we're taking the Lord's Supper, examine ourselves, see that we are in the faith, that we are spirit-filled people, because we cannot be united in one spirit if we are not spirit-filled. And not only that, but we have to make sure that our church is filled with spirit-filled people. One of the most important contributions that Baptists have made to the life of the church historically is the idea of regenerate church membership. The idea that the church isn't just a group of some people who are in the faith and some people who are out of the faith. It's not just a group of people who have professed faith and their children. It is a group of people who have professed faith in Christ, who have been baptized into Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the church. The church are people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. And so if we're going to make sure that as a church, as a body like the church of Philippi, that we can stand firm in one spirit, that we need to make sure that the people that join our church are of the one spirit. That they are in the one spirit. That they are filled with the one spirit. Now that's not saying that certain people aren't welcome here. And that would be a distortion of the belief of regenerate church membership. To say that, well, you're not welcome here unless you look a certain way. Unless you dress a certain way. Unless you believe a certain way. Listen, anyone is welcome to attend this church at any time. In fact, if you if you kept up with the weekly emails, if you want to come pray in our sanctuary, all you need to do is give me a call. We'll let you in. That's not what's at issue here. It's not an issue of who's welcome or who's not. It's an issue of who's a member of the church and recognized as being in the faith. Because when we allow people to join the church, we are giving them our stamp of approval. You, to the best of our understanding, are saved by Jesus Christ. And if we give that stamp of approval to people who are not in the one spirit, then we are just making them extremely comfortable on their way to hell. 
And so if we are to stand firm in one spirit, we must make sure we are in the one spirit, and we must make sure our church family is in one spirit. But it's not just that. We also have to stand firm with one mind. Paul says in verse uh, 27, not just that we stand firm in one spirit, but that we stand firm with one mind. I think of Corinthians. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, they're dealing with some divisions. They're dealing with some people who say, well, we follow Paul. And they're dealing with some other people who say, well, we follow Paul. So, or another person who says, we follow Jesus. Trump card. We're following Jesus. And they're all divided about who they're supposed to be following. And Paul writes to them amidst that confusion and says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. They'd have the same mind and the same judgment. Now, to be clear, in Corinthians later, he gives them some parameters for disagreeing on things. So Paul's not saying, go and brainwash each other until you all agree on something. He's not saying go write down a longer and longer and longer and longer and longer document of what you all agree on until everyone is persuaded. He's simply trying to give them the parameters for fundamentally what they're supposed to be about. Stop dividing over who you're following and start uniting in Christ. Paul writes in chapter 2 which will, of Philippians, which we'll read next week, but it's connected. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, He tells them, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being being in full accord and of one mind. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul wants them to have the mind of Christ. You want to know how to get a church moving in the same direction? Don't hire a personality charismatic preacher. I mean, you can do that, whatever. I'm saying, don't think that'll solve the problem. Don't write a really good, catchy vision statement and hope that'll solve the problem. Don't get everyone to come up with some really comprehensive document they all have to sign. That's not going to solve the problem. I'm not saying any of those things are inherently bad. What I'm saying is, if you want people united in Christ, you have to point them to Christ. That if you want people to have the mind of Christ, you need to make Christ the head of the church, not some personality, not some group of leaders, not some other document. If we are going to have one mind and stand firm in one mind, with one mind, then we've got to agree that our leader is Christ alone. And that we know who this Christ is from the word of God alone that reveals him to us. Our opinions on Jesus aren't what ultimately matter. It's what the Word says. We can have opinions on Jesus. I'm not saying you can't. You can say, well, I like, my, I like to imagine Jesus like this. Okay, whatever. But what's the Word of God say about Jesus? And that means in the life of the church and in our personal lives, this must be the sure and steady guide for everything we do. You are going to be much better off in a business meeting, even a Baptist one, quoting the Word of God or arguing your position from the Word of God than just making stuff up out of your head. You're going to be much better off when you sit down and pray if you look to the Word of God for inspiration 
on what to pray or how to pray. You're going to be much better off in your daily life if you would submit yourselves to this word. And once we all do that collectively as individuals and together, we can get some forward movement. We can stand firm. That idea of standing firm together, uh, maybe it makes you think of, maybe it doesn't, the phalanx, the group of soldiers that would stand with a shield and a sword together and they'd all be grouped together. You know what's interesting about that group is as they stood firm in a defensive posture, they actually were kind of interlocked with their shields. They would even say, my shield is for my brother and my sword is for my enemy. And what would sometimes happen is if you had a guy there being afraid, he might move over a little bit because he wanted to be under your shield a little bit more, and then he'd put the whole line in danger. We have to stand firm together, being side by side, striving together. That's the third thing Paul says is that we must strive together for the gospel. He tells us side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are going to be ineffective if we are not united. I, I think back to uh, John 17, uh, Jesus' prayer for the disciples. He prays for his disciples, those who were following him at the time. And then he also prays for those disciples, those people who will believe after his disciples. And there he, he speaks about how... We need to be united. He says, he prays to the Father, let them be one as you and I are one. I and you and you and me. So that the world may believe that you sent the Son. Why is unity so important for the church? Why is it together? Why is it so important to be of, in one spirit and with one mind? It's for the purpose of striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's so that we don't just stay on the defensive, but we actually go on the offensive, not the offensive, the offensive. That we're ready to put the gospel forward in a world that might hate it and might hate us. We must strive together so that the gospel can be advanced, and we cannot do that. If we are being selfish, we cannot do that. If we are more concerned about ourselves than the people next to us, we cannot do that. If we're more concerned about the color of the carpet than whether people are walking in and standing on that carpet. Not that that's an issue here, at least recently. See, the life that's worthy of the gospel, Paul tells us to live a life worthy of the gospel. That life is a life that advances the gospel that proclaims the gospel, that does gospel work, that links arm in arm and pushes forward. I think there was an elder from my home church who, who I had a lot of respect for, and I, I really respected his wife. His wife uh, was not a prideful woman. She wasn't a flashy person, but she had so much respect in that church. If, if you wanted anything done, if she stood up and said we should do it, it was going to get done because so many people respected her. His favorite song was, um, and I can't uh, remember the exact name of the song, the, uh, you will know, They Will Know We Are Christians By Our Love. You know that song? I'm not going to sing it. Nice try. And he says, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And it even talks about how we're going to uh, uh, work side by side. I mean, that whole song is a song of unity. 
and a song of love for one another. It's, it's a song that really gives the heart of what the church is all about. It's, it's not about finding a new person to bicker with. It's about finding someone that you can stand side and side with, arm and arm with, and pro, bring the gospel to other people. He also tells us, in verse 4, Paul says, or sorry, in verse 28, Paul says that he wants to see them not frightened in anything by your opponents. So we're supposed to stand firm in one spirit, stand firm with one mind, strive together side by side for the gospel, to see the gospel advance, and we are to not be frightened in anything by those who oppose us. Now in the church in Philippi, there seem to be a number of issues going on. There's some internal strife and conflict. There may be some conflict from some false teaching outside the church influencing them. But there's also just the reality that they are citizens of heaven trying to live in a Roman colony where they're called to be citizens, where they're called to worship Caesar, the emperor. And so in that context, it seems that Paul is worried that they have been letting fear of these men who oppose them make them withdraw, make them be silent, make them hide, make them change their opinions and their practices, such that they are letting the fear of man rule in their hearts rather than the fear of the Lord. And yet Christ tells us that we shouldn't fear those who can kill the body only, but we should fear the one who, will, who can kill not just the body, but also destroy the soul in hell. And it's not because God is some malicious figure. It's because he is the all-powerful creator of everything, the redeemer of everything. He is the God who we owe not just all of our respect, but all of our thanks to. All of our thanks for the breath in our lungs, the food in our stomachs, the water that we get to drink, the shelter we have over our heads, but also the salvation that we couldn't earn for ourselves. And it's this God that we ought to fear Not because he's malicious, not because he's our enemy, not because he's our opponent, but because he is the God who loves us even while we were his enemies. Because he is the God who is more powerful than any man that we're going to come against. And so Paul's encouragement to them is, in the midst of a culture that hates you, don't be afraid. In the midst of a culture that speaks ill of you, don't be afraid. In the midst of a culture that says, shut up about that gospel, don't be afraid to tell them that Christ came and lived and died for your sins and was raised from the dead. And if you repent from your sin and believe, you can be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar and not this world and not the other gods and things we worship but Christ alone is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved so we stand together we strive together for the gospel and we don't fear anyone or anything but the Lord himself but here's a question that you may not have thought to ask why should we live like this Paul tells us in verses 28, starting with this is a clear sign. He says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
This is an extremely, verses 27 through 30, I think there's two or three sentences there in most English translations. It's one long, convoluted sentence, so lots of scholars like to break it down and tell you they don't know what they're doing, but here's some guesses. But here's what we see clearly. This idea, this is a clear sign. It's saying, living like this is a clear sign of the destruction of your opponents. Because persevering in a culture that opposes you, loving each other and this world in a culture that hates you, living like this shows that Christ not only is one on the cross, but will win again when he returns. That he will bring the kingdom that he bought on the cross fully and finally. And persevering in the culture now, seeing people saved now, living as the church now, is a proof Maybe not to your opponents, because they may not be convinced by that proof, but it is a proof to you, at the very least, that God has won and will win. It is a proof to you of their destruction. If they continue to oppose you, then it is a proof of their destruction. And it's a proof of your salvation. It demonstrates, it demonstrates that you are saved when you persevere through trials, when you persevere through persecution, when you face the difficulties. The Philippian church, their salvation is evidenced by the boldness for the gospel that can only come through the work of the Spirit in them to produce that boldness. And Paul says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Literally it says, For it has been graced to you. It has been graced to you. It has been given to you as a gift to suffer for the sake of Christ. Not only that you would believe in him, but you would suffer for his sake. In Scripture, the sufferings of Christ's church are always connected back to the suffering of Christ for them. So that it is not only something we endure, but it is an honor to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I can't make sense of that. Now, if this life worthy of the gospel is a life that, that might bring conflict and might bring suffering, is it really a life worth living? Is it really a life worth living? Are we going to be like the Japanese Christians in the book Silence, suffering persecuted, feeling like we don't hear from God at all. Now, I'm not going to commend everything in that book, but there is an interesting moment near the end of that work. So one of the practices the, the Japanese government would put forward is they would actually have a little, I think it was bronze image of Christ that they would make uh, Christians step on as a way of denouncing their faith. And so the challenge in the book, the tension that Rodriguez feels is that he is going through suffering and being persecuted and seeing Christians persecuted, but he does not want to step on the image of Christ and renounce his faith. Now in the book, it's ambiguous. It's not clear exactly what happens. In the movie, they have to show a bit more and make it a certain way. But in the book, it's not entirely clear whether Rodriguez holds fast to the faith or renounces it. It's not entirely clear. Because in the book, what happens is he, he's kept in a place and he keeps hearing what he thinks is snoring. And finally, someone tells him that's not snoring, that's groaning. And it's the Christians in the other room being hung upside down for time on end. And so the tension he feels is he can either renounce his faith 
and save those people. He can step on the image, or he can persevere and not, and all those people are left to suffer. Now, I'm not making an ethical pronouncement on what happens, but what he experiences is this, and it makes a point that I want to to bring out. He says that when he is confronted with this, he says this, and then the Christ in bronze speaks to the priest, speaking to him, trample, trample, I more than anyone know of the pain in your foot, trample, it was to be trampled on by men I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. Now, we do not know in the book whether this was actually supposed to be in the book story, right? God speaking to him, or whether it was his own imagination filling in the blanks so that he can save these people. We don't know. But the idea that he comes to, and this is what's so profound, is that Christ speaks to him and says, I was brought into this world to suffer for the sake of men. Rodriguez understands and comes to the conclusion, God has not been silent amidst suffering. His response to a world in which there is suffering was to enter that world himself and to suffer for the sake of those who would believe. That he came into this world to suffer and to die and to take the sufferings of men. So when we're in a hostile culture, why should we live like this? Well, when we live like this, when we stand firm in one spirit, when we stand firm with one mind, when we strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel, and we fear nothing, even those things that come from our opponents, we show that God wins. We demonstrate That God's citizenship, the citizenship of heaven, is more important than any on this earth. And we point to the one who suffered for our sake, who suffered for our sin, and whose suffering we now experience as a grace, as a gift, so that we might participate in the sufferings of Christ. Let's pray.